0: place in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. It's page 969 in your pew Bibles. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and kept back some of the price for himself, with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Anias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Anias fell down and breathed his last and great fear came over all who heard it. The young men got up and covered him up, and carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young man came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who had heard these things.
1: Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us again, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. Uh, we are thankful for the wonderful, wonderful gathering we had last night at the Young at Heart banquet. It's the largest attendance we've ever had. It's a wonderful evening through and through. The meal was delicious. The entertainment was wonderful. The times of honoring was great. And for all those that participated, that came, and for all those that helped, uh, we think we say a big thank you. We also are. Thankful for our young men who conducted worship service this past Sunday night at Salem, which is the congregation where Jamie Harbour preaches. And I want to especially mention of those that participated. Jonathan Collins, he led singing... Uh, and that was the first time in the Sunday nights that we go other places and conduct the services. That's the first time that he did that. And Alan Cantrell uh, preached a lesson, and that was the first time that Alan had preached in that kind of setting. And we are so thankful for those young men, and we hear the tremendous job that they did last Sunday. And also, we look forward to this coming month of April. All teens and all parents, you have already heard, but it is just another reminder that we will have a special Wednesday night series all throughout April. The meal will begin at 6.15 here on Wednesday evening, and Joe Wells will come over each of those Wednesday evenings, and he is from Focus Press, and he will be speaking on confronting culture, and so make sure uh, all the teens, all the parents are a part of that, and uh, also be sure and help us get the word out about that. Also, this coming weekend, we have a calling and caring seminar. You'll remember a few years ago we had that, and it was powerful. If you want to know why people fall away from the Lord, and you want to know especially what you can do to help them, uh, this is a powerful time of training. There'll be three hours Friday night, and then two more sessions. There are three hours each Saturday morning, one, and Saturday afternoon for the other. Lunch is provided. Be sure and sign up for that. Be sure and make your plans to be here to give us a little insight about Uh, The importance of this, Steve Cummings, the one who will be presenting this seminar, will come over this evening and he will preach to us this evening to help us be prepared uh, for that seminar and to help us see the necessity of it. So be sure and uh, be looking forward to tonight's service and looking forward to the ways that we can grow in order to make a difference in the lives of others, especially those in our congregation that may be struggling spiritually. Surely there's something we can do to make a difference. When we think about our action series, we think about the chapter 5, that the beginning of that chapter has just been read, and it really does sound like an action movie, doesn't it? We have a deceitful plot taking place about the lying, about how much the land sold for and how much is actually brought at the apostles' feet, and then we have some kind of violence that actually ends with God striking them dead, but yet there's also something a lot more important than just the similarities of a movie. You see, it's also in here that we see the idea that you could search the world over and you'll never find a perfect congregation. The Lord's plan of the church is absolutely perfect. But you see, those of us that make up that plan are imperfect people. I almost want to cringe if, and I don't hear it real often, but every now and then I hear somebody say, it just seems like Mount Julia Church of Christ is the perfect place. Hang around another day, hang around another week, hang around another month, and you can have a long list of imperfections that you'll see in the life of this congregation, because not only are we not perfect collectively, we're not perfect individually. We love and serve a perfect God, but we bring our strengths and our weaknesses to our God. We are part of a wonderful church body, but we are imperfect people. And so when we even look at the book of Acts, at the beginning of the book of Acts, we see this this waiting of people for the promise of the Holy Spirit that would come down and they're given that great commission again that these individuals are going to be the ones that will bear witness of Jesus in Jerusalem and throughout Judea and then throughout Samaria and to the other ends of the earth. And and then we see in Acts 2 that happens and wow, what a reception. 3,000 souls become Christians. And then we flip the page in the Bible and we see Peter and John going out and healing the man. And and we see such power of this early church. And then we we flip another page and we see that now they are arrested. They're being intimidated. They're being threatened. But instead of, of folding Peter and John, they stand in boldness. And once they stand in boldness, they are finally relieved and allowed to go. And what do they do? They gather the church together to pray for more boldness in the future. And then toward the end of the fourth chapter, we have the reminder again that they love God and each other so much that they were willing to sell their possessions and share with all those that were in need. He says they had one heart and one soul. Now, if we stop right there, it kind of becomes a little bit uncomfortable because we're starting to see a standard, and I'll just give you my opinion. We're starting to get a standard set to where I say... I don't know if I can belong to a church like that. It seems like that church in the first century was absolutely perfect. Who could be a part of it? It's kind of like the individual that one time told Charles Spurgeon, I don't like your church and I'm going to leave it and I'm going to find me a perfect church. And Charles told him, he says, well, when you find it, don't join it, you'll ruin it. Now... I kind of think about, as I read through the first few pages of Acts, I think about, that's a wonderful church. As a matter of fact, it almost seems like that's a perfect congregation. And, and I find myself saying, I'd like to be a part of it, but if you've got to be perfect, there's no place for me in it. And I almost feel a little bit of relief when I get to Acts the fifth chapter. And we find out that that congregation wasn't so perfect after all. And then we turn the page and we go to Acts, the 6th chapter, and we see that with the growing pains, they actually had some of their widows that were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. I can identify with mistakes and neglect. And it's a reminder to all of us this morning. We don't set back in comfort in our mistakes, but the Lord's church from the very beginning The Lord's church was designed for people who wanted to strive to grow closer to Him. Those that wanted to leave the mistakes behind and those that wanted to be more of what God wanted them to be. Now with this in mind, I ask you to look back at that text one more time. And as we look back at Acts the Fifth chapter. I hope you have your Bible open. If not, you can see there on the screen. I'd like to take your eyes back just a couple more verses from the text that's already been capably read for us, but look back in the fourth chapter in 36. And as we do this, uh, I want you to be reminded that it's man that put in the chapter breaks. And so I'd like for you to read this and, and just as we read it, remember there's no break in between going from the fourth to the fifth chapter. And Instead, as a matter of fact, as the fifth chapter begins, he says, but... And that's a very important word there because it's an offset. There's something that's been set up that's very beautiful, but there's also something that's not so beautiful. And, and look at the generosity here. We've already talked about earlier in just a few verses earlier how they were willing to share all of their things together. And so we have a personal example of that in the 36th chapter. And Joseph, who was... I'm, I'm sorry, 36th verse. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a certain man named Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. There's something interesting here as we consider the motive that was driving Barnabas and the motive that no doubt must have been driving Ananias and Sapphira. And what we see here is that when our motive is not pure, the idea of us continually sacrificing over long periods of time simply will not be true. If the motive's not pure, the sacrifice will not endure. Well, what do you think the motive was for Barnabas? Well, we read earlier back in the fourth chapter, going all the way back up to 32, he had that one heart and that one soul that, that he loved God and he wanted to be in union with God. But then we see something as we consider Ananias and Sapphira that probably was a different motive. Now, I don't want to read too much into this as, as I set a stage of setting here. I'm going to give you my, maybe some opinion here. But the conclusion we do have here. But I'd like for you to think for just a moment. Could could it have been like this? Imagine Ananias and Sapphira sitting over here to the side and imagine they're they're seeing this church family that they're continually seeing one of their brothers or sisters in need and that person just goes and sells something and then they bring part of the proceeds and they share it with a brother or sister. Or there were some that were selling houses or land and they were bringing all of that and they were laying it down at the apostles' feet. And then there's that one example of Barnabas, except his name was Joseph. And and he takes and he sells a piece of land and he brings all of that money and he lays it at the apostles' feet. And can you imagine the blessings? Because after all, you see it there in the text, it was the apostles that changed his name. Oh, Barnabas, we're going to start calling you that because you are a son of encouragement. Look at this tremendous sacrifice. Do you think there was anybody in the church that went up to Barnabas after he did that and gave him a hug and said, you really encouraged me. Thank you for your example. Ananias and Sapphira watching this. Wow, did you hear the praise that he got from the apostles? Do you see how everybody is really taken in by the generosity? And look, other people are being generous. Now, pause here for just a moment. Isn't generosity attractive? You know, if, if we were not Christians and we were living in the midst of the world and we saw somebody sell a major possession and share it with a neighbor that had a need, we wouldn't have to have Christianity to say, wow, that, that's beautiful. That was a very good thing they did. And so now what we seem to have here is we have a couple sitting over here that's very attracted to generosity because of the praise. That it no doubt was bringing in. Oh, I wish people thought of me like that. I wish somebody would rename us. Maybe they'll start calling us Mr. and Miss Barnabas. And what do they do? Now they sell some land, but a different motive. It's not to bring it all at the apostles' feet because they love the Lord that much. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of deception involved as they keep back part of it and lay the rest at the apostles' feet and then lie about it. Why would they lie about it? Why would they use their mouth to try to convince others that they'd given the whole? There's hardly no other reason except they wanted the praise of men because we're going to get to this in just a moment, but let me go ahead and throw it out here so it makes this point real clear. There was nothing in the church where individuals were commanded to sell possessions and bring it all to the apostles' feet. And so they weren't lying about it because they wanted to claim obedience when they were not being obedient. It didn't have anything to do with you had to bring the whole amount in order to be obedient. And so it seems that the only reason is that that the same reason we read in John 12 and, and, and the 43rd verse whenever he says they love the praise of men more than they love the praise of God. Hey, we know this isn't right to do. I'm not really concerned right now with what God would say is right or wrong, but I sure would like to have the praise of the apostles. I sure would like for the church to praise me right now. How many times do we do things through selfish and wrong motives? How many times are we the husband or the wife that we are because... We found out that if we live up to just a little bit higher standard, our spouse treats us better. And so the reality is, the only reason we're the spouse we are is because of selfishness. What if your spouse didn't treat you better? Would you still be the spouse you ought to be because of your love for God, not because of setting off to the side saying, I've been observing, and if I do this, I get this kind of praise? If I do this, I get this kind of reaction. I want to start doing this. And it's a low motive. The greatest motive for for giving is because we love God. The greatest motive to be the, the husband or wife we ought to be is because we want to be a Christian husband or wife because we love God. What about your parenting? Youth. What about you as children? Why do you do what you do? Is it because you love God or is it because you have selfish motives that drive you? How many of us, the work in the church, how many of us would do just as much in ministry if nobody ever saw us work and there was never a pat on the back? Or is it that we do some of the things we do in ministry because we like to hear someone say, Wow, I really appreciate you. You are such a great worker in the kingdom. We're not belittling the importance of encouraging each other. We're talking about motive this morning. The motive was all wrong for why they brought something to the apostles' feet and then lied about it. And Luke, to emphasize that, puts two situations literally back to back to say, Let me show you Barnabas, and let me show you Ananias and Sapphira, and notice the stark difference. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew the 6th chapter. In Matthew the 6th chapter, I'd like for you to think about how he makes this point in a very powerful way in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Now... As you start glancing at this, you realize that much of the sixth chapter is about this particular topic. And so we won't have time to develop all of this. But if you're not familiar with this, I'd urge you to go back and study these verses in depth. But each one of these, he brings up a topic. Each one of these paragraphs, he brings up a topic. And then he says, now notice it's good things. But he says, I want to know why you're doing these good things. And so he begins in verse 1 of Matthew, the sixth chapter. Take heed. That means to carefully, to scrutinize what you're doing. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. That described Ananias and Sapphira to the T. Charitable deeds. Why are you going to go out and do good? Why are you going to do good like sell land and bring part of the money to the apostles' feet and then lie about it. Because I want to be seen by men. The Lord Jesus says, okay, if you do it to be seen by men, just keep in mind, you already have your reward. In other words, there's not going to be any kind of eternal reward that will follow that. Let's emphasize that. If we do what appears to be religious or even good acts, simply because we want praise of people, that is the only reward we'll have. No eternal reward follows false motives even when the action looks good on the surface. To illustrate that even more, he goes into the fifth verse and he talks about prayer. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites for they love to pray standing in the synagogues or on the corners of the street that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. We all understand how important it is to have a strong prayer life to be close to God. And so he takes something that's very wonderful, but he says, I want to challenge your motive. Why are you praying? Why are you praying where you're praying? Is your motive that you simply want to be seeing them in? Okay, you've got your reward. The people have seen you pray. Hope you feel good. Hope it was worth it because there's no reward that will follow for an eternity as a result of that kind of motive. He even goes a step further with fasting as we go to the 16th verse of Matthew, the 6th chapter. And he says, Moreover, when you fast, notice he doesn't say if, he says when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance. For they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. And each of these, he elaborates more, but you see the beginning of each of these paragraphs. If our motive is, I want to be seen by men, that's the only reward that we'll get. And we see for Ananias and Sapphira that the punishment that they received was immediate. But now please note this. Someone says, that punishment seems so harsh. Friends, that punishment is not harsh at all compared to the eternal punishment that's going to follow for everybody that lives through false motives. And for everybody that lies, Revelation 21 and 8, they're going to spend their eternity in a lake of, of fire and brimstone in hell. And so the very idea that you mean a physical death seems harsh. Friends, physical death is nothing compared to the eternal death that's going to come to everybody, not just Ananias and Sapphira, but to everybody that has false motives and lies through those. You see, the very fact of hypocrisy, hypocrisy is a lie. When someone acts one way with one group and then tries to present themselves in another way to another group, whether they speak anything at all, if they are living hypocritical, they are living a lie. So what's interesting is that Ananias and Sapphira's sin, even though it's easy for us to simply identify it as lying, a driving force of that lie was hypocrisy. And what lies behind all of that hypocrisy no doubt must have been false motives. And so as we think of this, I'd I'd like for you to think about in Acts the 5th chapter, verse 3 and 4 again, and especially... I'd like for you to think about verse 4 as we make this first point. I'd like for us to clarify some things that so oftentimes are misunderstood about this passage. If you and I just read this story as we've done this morning, you know, it just seems like such an easy story to understand, but it kind of is amazing that some of the things that come out of this that just simply are not true. There's been a movement for a couple of decades now that you would have remembered called the Boston Movement and then it became the International Church of Christ Movement and now there's a branch of that uh, that is broken off. It's called the Sold Out Movement. The only reason I bring that up to you is because those movements are very much alive and well today. There are hundreds and even thousands that are part of those movements. The sold-out movement, which is one of the newest movements that is spreading across America right now, is a movement that teaches their people that if you're going to become a part of our movement, you're going to need to sell your house that you live in and bring the money and lay it down at the feet of the church leaders. And you'll need to rent a home from now on because after all, that's what the Lord commands of those that are going to be a part of His church. Now, friends, I want to pause here for just a moment. If that sounds so far out and crazy to you, I remind you again, this movement has continued to do well in certain areas of the country for many years. And so the idea that, that, hey, that's, that's so ridiculous, I don't need to worry about it, you need to worry about it. How are you going to answer the question when someone comes to you and says, I thought you were a faithful Christian. I am. I thought you were really dedicated. I am really dedicated. Well, why do you own a house? We look back in the first century and they were selling their houses and giving the money. Why haven't you done that? Well, again, it's amazing how simple this story is if we just let the story speak for itself instead of us speaking for the story. Let's go back to verse 4 again and let's see what Peter said at this time to them. In verse 4, he says to Ananias, "...while it remained..." And he's talking about his, his uh, property there... He says, while it, the property remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You're not lied to men, but to God. Does that sound like to you, Peter saying, you must obey the command, sell your property, and bring all the money? He said just the opposite, didn't he? When you had that land, wasn't it your own property? Peter is saying, you had the right to own that property, but you made a decision. I'm going to sell it. And then even after it was sold, Peter takes it a step further and he says, even after it was sold, that money was in your control. You could have said to the apostles, hey, we we had some property, we decided to sell it, and we're going to bring 50% of that money and we're going to lay it at your feet because we love the Lord and we, we love these people that are hurting and we want to give 50%. And from what's taught in this story, I believe God, I believe the apostles, everyone would have said, thank you very much. The right of ownership is taught throughout the scriptures. And there was never a time in the new covenant, that Christians did not have the right to own property. But what we do see here is we see the role of Satan also in this. Look back, if you will, in verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? What do you think Satan wants to do when he sees a church that is unified? Because up to this point, that's what we were seeing. We saw a church that started out strong with 3,000. The Spirit of God was very much alive as they were even able to do miraculous things. We see the healing. We see the boldness. We see the prayers. We see this strong church, and you can imagine Satan scratching his head saying, How am I going to get to these people? What am I going to do? And thinking, I've got to destroy that unity. I've got to destroy that generous spirit they have. I've got to destroy that love that they have for each other. And he's able to slither his way into the life of Ananias and Sapphira. God loves unity. Satan hates unity. God loves truth and righteousness. Satan hates truth and righteousness. And so I simply ask you today, do you realize the role of Satan? The role of Satan is that he wants to make his way into your life and he wants you to not respect truth. He wants you to think that there's nothing wrong with a lie. He wants you to think that false motives, in other words, living a lie is not really that big a deal. He wants you to live that because in that He can destroy unity. But then finally notice the wrong was against God. Do you see at the end of that fourth verse, we've already read it, but you see there at the end when He says to Ananias, you have not lied to men but to God. Let's close with this point. How many times have you heard individuals say about a certain situation, a certain decision, and somebody say, do you really think that's right? And the person to say, it's not that big a deal. Oh, I I don't think God, I don't think it really matters to Him. Friends, we serve a God who asks us to be faithful in the small things, and the great things. We serve a God who loves us so much that He is involved in every moment of our life. We serve a God who is never going to look at anything in our life and then summarize and say, doesn't matter to me. I don't really love those people that much for it to matter. Listen, there is nobody that loves you the way God loves you. And because of that, there is nothing in your life that you can say or do that it doesn't matter to God. From the, from the smallest thing, like when the closing prayer is said this morning, how will you conduct yourself? If you see a visitor, will you go over and welcome them? Or will you go to a friend and, 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 and embrace that 40-year-old friendship and, and then, as the amen is said, you look over that, that, to that visitor and you're thinking, I need, I need to go over there. Ah, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to go over here. Do you think it doesn't matter to God? When you go to work tomorrow, are you going to live a life of integrity? Are you going to tell the truth? Oh, it's just a small lie on the expenses. It, it doesn't matter. Do you really believe it doesn't it matter to God? I'm begging you, think about it to your core. Do you really believe it doesn't matter to God? I beg you today to believe it matters to God. Jesus identified Himself. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. How are we going to make it to the Father? Only by truth. Truth matters to God. Whether it is the smallest, smallest truth, or if it is the grandest truth that we have ever intervened in, it matters to God. The truth about how we live, the truth about the motives of our relationships—it doesn't really matter what my motive is, just so long as I'm a good husband. That's a lie. It does matter what my motive is. It doesn't matter if I really give. It doesn't matter, or it doesn't matter. Oh, my motive for giving? Just so long as I give, it does matter what our motive is for giving. This morning, let's all leave here this morning convicted that my motive and my mouth is important to God every time, in every situation. And in that, in that, I can live truth, I can obey truth, I can speak truth, and I can reach the Father. Have you been baptized into Christ? If not, why not this morning? If you have been baptized into Christ and you've lost the way of truth and you want to come home to the one of truth, we would love to pray with you and for you. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand and as we sing.